Before we get started, After the Monuments is proud to receive support from VCU Massey Cancer Center. Massey Cancer Center wants you to imagine a future without cancer. All it takes is one, a revolutionary idea, a promising clinical trial, or a new breakthrough. See how Massey is developing new approaches to prevent and treat cancer for every person in every community. Learn more about this future for everyone at MasseyCancerCenter.org. I'm Kelly Lemon. And I'm Michael Paul Williams. And welcome to the After the Monuments podcast, where we look at events and news about race in a historical context and see how, too often, history repeats itself. Hey, it's Kelly. We're taking this week off, but we'll return next week with an all-new episode of After the Monuments with me and Michael Paul Williams. So for this, we're running one of our favorites from 2022, where we spoke with author Linda Velarosa, whose book has since earned her much press and recognition. Here's our combo with Linda. Welcome to another episode of After the Monuments, a real talk about race with Michael Paul Williams and myself, Kelly Lemon. Today, we have a great conversation by a artist, I mean, excuse me, an artist, an author, artist, a creative, a storyteller, Linda Velarosa. Her book is called Under the Skin. Linda, welcome to After the Monuments. Thank you. Glad to join you. How are you doing today? I'm good. Good, good. We're going to jump right into this conversation. We have your book right in front of us. Michael Paul Williams, why don't you start us off? Welcome, Linda. Um, the book is absolutely fascinating and extremely disturbing at once. Um, I must say it confirmed and articulated all the things that I kind of um, intuited, but didn't have a vocabulary for. So, so thank you for this. Um, I'd say it's recommended reading or, or, or essential reading. Um, speaking of vocabulary, um, there's a terminator that I think kind of speaks to everything uh, in the way of malady that the book is about called weathering. Can you explain to our viewers what weathering is? Um, well, weathering is a really interesting term, and I think of it for as far as scientific terms, it's very poetic. So it it describes the experience, the lived experience of being black in America, and it says that because we have felt, you know, we have all these um, aggressions, both macro and micro, that we go through and have to deal with you know, day in, day out, it takes a toll on the body. It's kind of like the fight or flight syndrome, which makes sense. But when it happens over and over and over again, your blood pressure spikes, your heart rate increases, your cortisol's levels levels spike up. So when that happens over and over, it prematurely ages the body or weathers it. The way a house weathers the storm, knocks the paint off, knocks the shingles off, it breaks the windows. But also on the flip side, a house weathers the storm, and weathering the storm is how we have community, we have kinship, we have family to help us protect against these daily assaults. So um, I love that term, and it was coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus from the University of Michigan, who is um, a really smart woman and has thought about this a very long time. All right. So it seems to me that a central um, kind of conceit of the book is that systemic racism in America um, is bad for our health. Um, yes. How do we, I, I'm, I'm just recalling the book and all of the resistance that you encountered to this very idea. Um, the previous president of the United States was resistant to the idea that systemic racism even exists. 
as are many elected officials. Um, how do we address this when so many people do not even are not even convinced that systemic racism is a problem? I'm a glass half full kind of person. And so I would say many more people are open to the idea than there used to be, certainly because of what happened with the pandemic when we saw, which was a surprise to no one who have been, has been studying um, racial health disparities in America, that we had worse health outcomes, higher death rates and more hospitalization rates right away with COVID. And so everyone who had been, especially those who had been looking at other viruses like HIV AIDS were like, this is gonna hit black folks really hard. And when that happened, it was confirming, just like you were talking about. Also, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor shouldn't have to be murdered to have people recognize that there are, you know, people die, black people die in America in a state sanctioned way by the police. But certainly we saw that and it was clear. So whereas in the past, organizations and colleges and places like the agencies were afraid to call racism a public health threat, now it's much more common to see that kind of language and to have people having dis important discussions like the ones that I tried to have in my book. About your personal evolution, um, um, your background as a writer is, is steeped in um, publications and, and, and writings um, that preach the gospel of self-help when it came to wellness. And um, part of this idea that, you know, our health is something we can control and it's our responsibility. And if we do certain things, um, we'll be okay. Um, descri describe your evolution on that idea. Well, first my family was, you know, a family of strivers. Our family came like so many others during the great migration. My grandparents came up from Mississippi to Chicago. Then my parents got out of Chicago and we lived in suburban Denver. And so we saw ourselves as these striving people who have um, all of it. We have control of everything in our lives if we work hard enough and we get enough education, which I still in some ways believe. But now I see that there is something more sinister going on in America that we have to pay attention to. And that's systemic and institutional racism. My background as the health editor of Essence magazine. I was very much about uplift, lift as we climb, that kind of thing, and um, sort of each one teach one. And my belief really firmly was if I knew about racial health disparities, I knew that black people had poor health outcomes in basically every area from birth to death. But I thought if we just give black women who read Essence Magazine and remember it's like 8 million, that's a very um, deep reach of a group of people. If we give them enough information, we'll be able to sort of educate our way out of this situation. And then little by little, I started to realize, wait, I'm not talking about the systemic and the institutional problems. I'm only expecting individuals to, you know, take care of themselves and to take care of the community without looking at other, you know, other factors. And so as, as I evolved, I think my thinking evolved and I just became a bit more political, if you will. Been right here, Linda, um, and and talk a little bit about um, you talked about the education. And one of the things that Michael Paul and I talk about on this show is that things that happened before the monuments were put up are still happening as these monuments are coming down. 
in whatever narrative or form you want these these monuments to be for you. Um, Henrietta Lacks and the importance of her body. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think that was some some people. And when I say some people's um, college age students started to read that book and were introduced to that book. And then they were introduced to how black bodies were used in health and science, but never got any recognition um, for it. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think Henrietta, La- Henrietta Lacks is a very interesting case because she's sort of the opposite of the usual narrative about the black body. Usually it's that something about us is inferior. But with her, she had like superpower cells that were able to be used for to great purpose. She died without, you know, having her cells being used without her knowledge. She passed away very young. And then her cells have gone on to make great um, scientific discoveries and to help a lot of people. It has only been recently that her, she got the recognition that she deserved and that she got, you know, her family received recognition and remuneration. And I'm excited about that, but this is um, a through line that has gone on with black people since the enslavement days where our bodies are used to help others without us getting credit or recognition. Also using our bodies, but not being able to help and serve us when it comes to um, some of the things that you described in, in your book, especially chapter three, something about being black is bad for your body and your baby, um, you know, in terms of just women's health and, and, and prenatal health. Can you, can you get into that a little bit as well? Well, I think that was really hard for me to accept. When I first heard the numbers about maternal mortality in America, it started with, oh, did you know, someone saying to me, did you know that America is the only wealthy country where the numbers of women who die or almost die in childbirth is rising. This was in 2017. I was like, oh, really? How is that happening? How are people dying in childbirth? So then the second one was, well, it's driven by Black women who are three to four times more likely to die. And I said these words. I said, oh, is it extremely poor women? Is that it? Where are they? What's happening? Um, That seems so unfair. And they said, wait a minute, it's not just poor Black women. It is if a black woman with a master's degree or more is more likely to die or almost die or lose her baby than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So while the usual narrative is, oh, if you're poor, then something bad happens to you in America because of your poverty. But what if it isn't just because of poverty, which is also entangled with race and racism, but it sometimes it is explicitly linked to racism. Here's something I noticed is um, I got two really wonderful reviews for my book last week, one in the New York Times and the other in the Washington Post. Both of the reviewers talked about their experiences with maternal, um, you know, with near miss, which is when a woman almost dies. And um, with the gentleman for the Washington Post, his baby died and his wife was hemorrhaging. And he thinks that the medical providers really didn't listen to them. And then the woman from the Times had a really difficult birth, though she says she did everything right. And this is a Black woman. So I'm thinking, well, wait, both of the reviewers are also saying this? We've got to start listening to each other's stories and making a difference in this this area. In the book, you were talking about the case of Serena Williams, who, I mean, who would be more in tune with their body than, than an athlete like Serena and how the doctors were not listening to her. Um, regarding her history of of blood clots and and so forth. Um, 
what is it about black women in this situation and black people in general that, that the healthcare professionals are unwilling to listen to them? Well, here's the story that really got me. And I include it at, in the last chapter of my book about COVID. And it's the case of Dr. Susan Moore. So she's a physician. She's, she works in Indiana. She gets COVID. She is hospitalized. She has tubes in her nose. She's lying in the hospital bed. And because she's a physician, she knows what to do for COVID. So she's, giving, she's suggesting to the medical providers, you know, maybe we should have this treatment, maybe that. And they ignored her. Then she had extreme pain and they didn't give her pain medication. And she said it was because they treated her like she was drug seeking, like she was a drug addict. So what she did was she made a, a video of herself and put it up on Facebook from her hospital bed. She ended up leaving that hospital, but then she died. And um, her refrain of her video was, this is how black people get killed. And in an investigation that the hospital did, one of the reasons, one of the factors they cited was the medical staff was intimidated by her medical knowledge. So why is it that when we do have the information, when we do know what's best, you're a doctor, you're trained in this, then you're still not listened to. So that to me is really scary. And that didn't happen, you know, in the 1800s. That happened, you know, two years ago. Back to a conversation that we've had numerous times on this show, um, Michael Paul, trust. You know, we just do not, we don't trust <laughs> a lot of things as, as black folks in America. And, um, you know, it's very hard to get us to go to the doctor, right, to, to, to seek this. And then once we do, if you're not listening to us, you know, where do we go from here? Right, Linda? It's really interesting because sometimes we're talking about medical distrust, especially when it came out around the COVID-19 vaccine. People were, like, were saying, you know, in conversations with me, oh, it's because of the Tuskegee experiment. And I'm just like, well, the Tuskegee experiment was terrible, but it did end in the 70s. It isn't about that. It's about what happened to you, your loved ones, in the, in the medical setting yesterday, in current time. And this has been so well documented. Sometimes people will ask me, well, do you have proof of this? I was like, I'm not giving you any more proof <laughs> because this is so well proven, but now they can read my book and see the proof because I got it all in one place. But I get really frustrated. It's like, we don't need any more proof. We don't need any more data. We don't need any more research. We need some change right now because it's already been well documented and there's plenty of evidence that we do not get treated the same when we enter the medical setting. The saddest part of the book, or one of the saddest aspects, is that continuum in which we have sterilizations dating back to enslavement and sterilizations in the very recent past at a Georgia immigration detention facility. And so many of this seems focused or, or, or it seems to be done to women of color, um, not just black women, um, uh, Mexican women, Puerto Rican women, Native American women. And I can't help but shake all of that in the context of this great replacement theory that we're dealing with, where there's this feeling that, um, this fear in America that we are, that it is being overtaken by people of color. Um, it, it, I don't know, it just helped me with that. It just seems like, I don't, I'm not trying to be conspiratorial, but it just seems like we are at that place where, um, you know, our very reproductive um, uh, continuum is jeopardized. Here's what I think, because I said I'm a glass half full. 
So I think that the more we know and we're aware of this, the more we can fight back. And what I see, which is the flip side of this, because I do believe exactly what you're saying, but I also see more people aware of this. I was really um, heartened by, um, I interviewed a lot of medical students around the country and I see them um, much more political, much more outspoken than um, their medical students used to be in the past. And um, I'm really excited that we're entering, you know, we're entering a future with a new kind of healthcare provider, whether it's a doctor, nurse, um, public health policymakers that are much more educated and unwilling to enter, you know, the future with these old ideas, with, you know, without examining all of our, you know, implicit biases. And that made me really happy. Um, and it's really interesting to see them trying to make change in both education and training, even while they're in medical school, school which is extremely hard. So that was a bright light when I was um, doing the research for this book. And I was really kind of attaching myself to these medical students because I um, felt like this is the future we need. Before I kick it back to Kelly, um... And this is a 2020, this is a, a new publication, your book, 2022. But I have a suspicion that it went to print before the Roe versus Wade, um, uh, the, just the news that Roe versus Wade is on borrowed time. Um, given um, that uh, black women are three times more, more likely to experience um, maternal mortality, and everything that your book goes into. How, how do you feel about just the idea that um, there could be these restrictions on abortion? I think this is all tangled together. So eugenics, <laughs> um, restricting abortion, all of these things are enmeshed. And what I, how I think about it is through the lens of reproductive justice. So reproductive justice is a Black-led and created um, way to think about things. And it's only three. It's three things. All women have the right to have a baby. So you can't sterilize people against their will. All women, oh, people, have the right to not have a baby. So you have to have reproductive choice. And then all people have the right to raise children in healthy, safe environments. Those are the three tenets of reproductive justice. And so that's how I think of it. But I think reproductive injustice, they're all tied together, which is about controlling people's lives and their fertility. Can you talk a little bit about alternative ways to get um, our, our health care? An example is the rise in doulas, um, especially black doulas. Um, I have seen um, a lot here in the Richmond region. And as a woman that's a little bit older, um, in terms of I'm, I'm over my 40s and I do not have a child, um, but I can still have one if I choose to. Um, my only route would be a doula at this point, um, just because of the research that I've done. Can you talk about those alternative um, health care providers? I would say doulas and midwives. So a doula is um, a person, generally a woman, who helps a birthing person during the pregnancy, the labor, and then the time after, mostly with breastfeeding. So um, I love the, you know, after I wrote my 2018 um, story in the New York Times Magazine, why America's black mothers and babies are in a life or death crisis, 
I got really excited about people telling me I'm going to become a doula, especially black women. And they're not just, you know, doulas used to be sort of out of reach of people who weren't wealthy, but now they're these doulas who are more social justice oriented. Um, I know you're out of Virginia and I wanted to tell you that I ran and I was in Virginia with my nieces. Um, she had a fencing match. So I ran into this really wonderful woman and she said, oh, do you know Linda Villarosa from the New York Times? I said, I'm her. And she said, I run a nursing school and um, the nurses, the nurses in training have to um, do a kind of a community service um, project. And I wanted to add becoming a doula as the community service project. So this is at Old Dominion. So um, they ended up starting the doula program as part of this community service. And then I went and met the first class of them and cut the little ribbon and gave them their certificates. And it was so exciting. So I think, you know, I'm always really happy when my magazine articles and hopefully this book too can make that kind of change that spurs people into saying, no, we need more um, doulas who understand, who are not just in it for the money, who are in it to help and who have a reproductive justice frame thinking. And I'm, that's one of the things, the other things that really excites me. You brought up the, um, the, the conversation about people thinking that they can't afford them um, because doula is such, I mean, it's the, the, when you hear the word, most people are like, well, what is that? And then it sounds expensive a little bit or to have a midwife or that you had to hire someone. But there are so many social activists and social um, advocates out here that are in that space that are helping black women in this area. So I'm glad that you brought up the disparities in the finance part of uh, childbirth. The other thing is um, more and more, you can get it co covered, you can get doula, um, doula services covered by your health insurance, or even in some states, um, we're trying to, in some states are trying to get doulas covered by say Medicaid. And so that is a really, really good step in the right direction. From the black healthcare providers, um, I, I am blessed to say that all of my healthcare providers are black. Um, they all are women. Um, even down to my dentist. Um, but that was hard. It was hard for me to find. It was hard for me to find in my network. Is there any um, advice or is there anything that you would want to say to black healthcare providers of or, or how they can be more visible or how they could make sure that their practices are known to, you know, a, a majority of the population? I think what I want to say to them is thank you. Um, it's really hard to get through medical education and training. I'm teaching next, I teach at the City University of New York here in New York City. I'm coming to you from Brooklyn. And next semester, I'm not teaching journalism. I chose to teach at the medical school. And part of it is because of it's very hard to get through medical school if you're a regular Black person. Many of us did not have, our dad wasn't a doctor. And so, or we don't have that kind of red carpet into medical education and training. So I'm really excited for that. And I think that, you know, I support your decision to do that, to really go through the extra work of seeking out providers that look like us. And that's really important to support them. I would say, you know, like keep, please stay in, don't, you know, stay in school and um, make it through and then find ways to, you know, attach yourself to community service and attach yourself to, you know, sort of being a, the public expression. Because that's really important that we also um, see each other so that we encourage other students to also go into medicine. 
Um, when we talk about weathering, we're talking about kind of um, how uh, racism in America um, kind of has turned our body against us. Um, but there are external assaults that you, you, you talk about in the book. Um, can you talk about the role environmental racism um, is playing on our, on our health conditions? Um, there were, we have a neighborhood here in Richmond, um, the open court. It's a public housing community. And it's five and a half miles from another neighborhood, um, predominantly um, white, more affluent, uh, called Westover Hills, five and a half miles apart. And the life expectancy is 20 years. The difference, the difference in the life expectancy is 20 years. And I was astonished to read in your book that there's a community in Chicago, um, Inglewood, um, that is nine miles from a place called Streeterville, where the life expectancy is 30 years difference. Um, can you talk about the, the role that environment and environmental racism plays in, 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 in our life chances and just our overall health? There's a term called the social determinants of health, and it's kind of like a wonky public health term, but it means that it describes communities. So it describes safety in a community, clean water, um, fresh air, not polluted air, uh, the ability to have green space so that you could go outside and exercise, the having healthy food um, choices, healthy, affordable food in your community. And if you are lacking these things, including also schools, it counts for schools. If your schools aren't good, if the stores are, don't have fresh, healthy food, if you can't exercise, if housing is crumbling, that is a, um, a community that is unhealthy. That's how I like to think of it. My mother is from Inglewood. My family um, came from Mississippi and landed there. And it was a promised land. But then it became not a promised land. It became a very unhealthy place. And when my mother and I went to visit, I was shocked at how it looked. Her school was boarded up where she went to school with Lorraine Hansberry and Gwendolyn Brooks. The school was boarded up. Her elementary school wasn't there. You know, even the school that I went to before we moved was all the area around it was boarded up. And there weren't a lot of healthy choices, but there were a lot of kind of, there was danger in the community where we were staying at the, we were staying in Streeterville in a hotel and it was stark. So I saw, I understood why there's that 30 year difference in life expectancy. But what I don't like is when the communities themselves get blamed for what happened. To Inglewood was um, redlined. So people weren't able to get mortgages. It, on top of that, there was contract buying, which meant even my grandfather could not buy a home without having it be on contract. If, so that meant he had no equity into it. If he missed payments, he could lose the home. So that sapped so much black wealth out of that black community. And that's not people's fault. <laughs> you know, that's nobody's fault. That is a, sanctioned by economics and by the government. And so that's what I like to think of is to think, stop blaming us for the problems that we have and start having more compassion and empathy and start looking into the history of what happens to places that are quote unquote unhealthful to live in. And those communities are much more um, subject to a manufacturing or a facility moving in that also pollutes the area because it has been devalued. Yeah, the, um, the SAG of Duke um, Energy uh, that was that was heartbreaking and in, in, in its impact um, on that community in North Carolina. Um, you quote in the book um, 
W.B. Du Bois saying in effect, there are fewer case, few cases in the history of civilization where human suffering has been viewed with such peculiar indifference. He's talking about America. Um, and given, and I'm glad you're a, a glass half full person because I need that right now. Mm -hmm. um, given, in my view, the very unlikely happenstance that systemic racism will disappear in my lifetime, how do we get at this? I mean, the racism's killing us, but the racism shows no signs of going away. What are we to do? I had this really interesting intergenerational conversation with my family. So my mother's 91, my children are in their 20s and I'm in between. So the, the, my mom was sort of like an old school bootstrapper because she's still in that headset. And it was her 90th birthday. And so then I'm more like the progressive, you know, idealistic. And my children are abolitionists. They're like, overthrow, turn over everything. Let's just destroy and rebuild it. And I loved that conversation that we had. And we all came out, you know, I came out thinking, I am so glad that we have younger folks who think differently. I'm so glad we have progressive people like me and like my friend circle and network and like you where we're thinking, what can we do? We don't want to be stuck in this. Maybe one step is just getting Black healthcare providers and talking about that. Another step is having your fantastic podcast. And then, you know, my mom kind of got dragged along in that conversation, her and her 90 year, years young. And I love that. And I think that when we grapple with these issues and we agree that we'll help each other, we agree that we'll support each other. I, you know, really believe in that. And I also see, you know, I was really an outlier writing about this stuff, even a few years ago. And now I've been, I get invited to a lot of groups of journalists, young journalists, students like that I teach, and also uh, people just out of school to say, how do we do the kind of reporting that you do? And I can see their little wheels turning going, ooh, I want to make a difference. And you did not get, when I was coming up, starting to be a journalist, it was all about how you do you and get ahead. So I love that there's this lens, the um, sort of a making a difference journalism and making a difference medical students and my kids making a difference. And so I really see that as a big hope for the future. I view it as a service. I want to thank you for this. Um, I could never quite articulate why I found so disquieting what seemed to be almost a progressive trope that our battle is class-based. It's not race-based. If we, if we solve the class issue, everything will take care of itself. And I, I never really bought into that. I think um, they're two distinct problems. And I think um, your, your, your research and your book proves that, that these, these are things that, that defy class explanation and, and class-based solutions. When a, a black woman with an advanced degree um, is at much more peril from a, 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 a childbirthing standpoint than a white woman with um, an eighth grade education. So can you speak to the class versus race uh, debate? I certainly was much more, you know, interested in class at the beginning of my career. And I, you know, I was honest about that in my book because I, I see other people still into that lens. But um, 
if we have these examples of people, including the two book reviewers who are certainly not, you know, they are people who are highly educated. The, the reviews were beautifully written, but both of them experienced race-based um, problems when just trying to have a baby. And so that alone, you know, I document as best I can, you know, you know, part of the back, part of my sort of back goal is to say, please don't only look at class, you have to look at race. And that is what Dr. Harold Freeman taught me, you know, in, in the early 90s. And I really listened to him. He said, if you do that, you're making a mistake. And certainly the other thing is class and race in America are, you know, wrapped up together. People, there are large numbers of poor black people because of racism. Our communities are not as healthy because of racism. And so you can't separate them in, in many cases, but then sometimes you actually can. And so it's sort of a complicated thing because I think, you know, when I was um, first starting in my career, that's how we were taught. It was like, there are poor black people that we have to help and we're separate from them. So that was my thinking. And now I'm like, well, no, we're not separate from them. Even if you're educated and you have health insurance and other means, you can still have a hard time in America and in general and in the healthcare system. And so, you know, it's, we have to grapple with this and it's more complicated than just saying poor people get sick because that's not, <laughs> that's not a, that should not be a truism. And also it's cruel, poor people, nobody should get sick. This is, you know, this is America. We're supposed to be equal. It's supposed to be, we're supposed to have equal justice. So we have to, you know, think about these things and fight pushback. We could probably talk to you for another hour. However, we uh, do have to wrap up this conversation. And then the, the, the final comments, and, and I wish we had more time to talk about this. You do talk about the emotional pain. And we got to talk a little bit about mental health and how that also is just, you know, affecting the black community. And you spoke about your mother. And, you know, that's one thing about those that are in the 90 or even, you know, 80-year-olds. They do not want you to talk about mental health. They do not want you to share our business with someone else. Can we just very quickly talk about how we can help with our mental health crisis and how this emotional pain is still affecting us? I think one of the things I looked at in my book was this through line from the enslavement days that um, Black people have this kind of superpower against pain, that we have extreme high pain tolerance, and that that is a through line to today. But in the past, part of the myth that we have high pain tolerance was we were immune to emotional pain. So that's why it was okay during the slavery times to take our children away, to kill our family members in front of us. And so that is clearly not true, but even we have internalized that. And so that's why there's a thing called the you know, strong Black woman and that it's a hard for us to show vulnerability, but it's also hard for us to be seen as vulnerable. So that when we have um, a, an emotional health crisis or a mental health problem, it looks like crazy or dangerous or something like that, rather than something that needs to be tended to, to cared for, that we need treatment, not incarceration. And so that's the thing that really bothers me about that. The other thing that we're lacking is um, mental health, we're same, same where we're lacking mental health care, um, health care providers in general that look like us, we're really lacking mental health care providers. My mother was actually trained as a psychiatric social worker. And so we have a lot of sort of therapists in my family. 
So I grew up with sitting around the table talking about people, not in the talking about people, but talking about people and the problems that my mother was seeing when in her early career. And I remember that, you know, that's really important to me personally, but also that people don't be ashamed to seek out. We don't have, we're not invulnerable and it's not great to be always strong, strong, strong. Um, and it's okay to seek help. And I covered that in um, my book with looking at a woman who was just trying so hard to be strong until she really, um, you know, went down in a, um, a suicide crisis. She survived, she's fine, but it was really difficult for her to get help. And then I cover a man who had bipolar disorder, a friend of my family, who was killed by the police because he was seen as dangerous rather than ill. And so that is important in, you know, that's an important thing in America. And we've seen more and more of that over the past couple of years where people are killed by the police because they are struggling with mental health issues, but um, they're seen as dangerous. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Can you tell everyone that's listening where they can find your book? And more importantly, where will you be over the summer talking about your book that they can get tuned in and listen to as well? Well, thank you for that. My book is called Under the Skin. It's on sale June 14th. So in, you know, today's Monday, it's tomorrow. Um, this is crazy time for me. I'm really excited. I go, um, I launch tomorrow in New York at um, St. Anne's Warehouse with a, a small um, people of color owned bookstore called uh, Cafe Con Libros. Then I go to North Carolina. Then I do a virtual thing in Atlanta. Then I go, I'm super excited because I go to Montgomery, Alabama, where I love and where the Ralph sisters live, where, you know, I covered them in my book. They were forcibly sterilized in 1973. They're 60-year-old um, women who I cannot wait to see. Then I go to New Orleans. So I'll be all over the place, but I'm really excited. You can buy my book at your favorite independent bookstore, or you can order on Amazon but please um, get it. And I love this stuff. I know it can be sad, but um, you know we have to grapple with it and look toward a better future. Congratulations to you. This is, um, like, as I said earlier, this is um, such an important book and, and to my thinking, essential reading. And I thank you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me this time to discuss it. Thank you, Linda. And once again, you're listening to uh, after the Monuments, a real talk about race with Michael Paul Williams and Kelly Lemon. We will talk to you guys next week. After the Monuments is a Virginia Video Network production and produced by Matt Pacilli, Michael Paul Williams, and me, Kelly Lemon. Technical direction and editing from Bill Barksdale. Executive production from Paul Farrell, Diane Salvatore, and Paige Mudd. Will Royer provides studio support. Our artwork is by Krishna Mathis. I'm Kelly Lemon, and we'll see you next week on After the Monuments. Huge thanks to Massey Cancer Center for being our After the Monuments sponsor.